0: You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Here we are for another episode of Derms and Conditions, a podcast that I have grown to love doing because I get to talk to so many interesting people. And I have with me today someone that I've gotten to know over the past few years on both the professional and the personal level. He's become a good friend, but also a fantastic colleague and working on a lot of, I think, very exciting things. In dermatology that's someone who is rapidly becoming a household name in dermatology my good friend dr chris bunick chris great to have you here today
1: thank you jim likewise it's been a pleasure getting to know you over the last few years and i think dermatology there's so much innovation and exciting things happening i can't can't wait to see all the fun things that that we're able to do and that the field is able to do
0: in the coming years well, Chris, I'm a blast, just so fasten your seatbelt and hold on, right? We have, we have a lot going on, and, and we've done a lot already. I appreciate all of that. So Chris is an associate professor at Yale, hopefully soon to be a full professor at Yale. He's in the Department of Dermatology, where he does a lot of clinical practice and research, both clinical and basic science research, and the basic science part of it, the things that he does... Are, are very unique and very different, and I really think they bring a lot to the table. So, Chris, recently I just read on Practical Dermatology a physician spotlight that was written about you, uh, and they do those fairly frequently with, uh, with dermatologists that have been around for a while and then the newer people that are coming along. And when I was reading it, I mean, I know you, and know a lot of the things that were in there, but I, as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself... I, thinking back to myself 20 years ago, right? Because I'm a good 20 years older than you are, but we both have the same passion for a lot of things. I thought I was reading about myself with the exception of the things that you can do in your laboratory, which I had no means to do it and really no ability or knowledge to do it, which I think has a lot to do with, in addition to your clinical sense, has a lot to do with what you bring to the table. So I'd like to start by some of the areas that you're working on. And one of the areas has had to do with looking at molecules, specifically looking at their structure and function and their activities in a way different than what has been done in the past. And let me start with the antibiotic area, because I know you've done a lot there. And I've read just about everything I can of of your work and have included it in presentations. So we have this issue of tetracyclines and we've had previous broad spectrum, uh, you know, tetracyclines that are used in infectious disease, but primarily for inflammatory diseases like acne, rosacea, uh, in dermatology. doxycycline and minocycline. Then along comes saracycline, which is a narrow spectrum tetracycline defined in a specific way right? Uh, when we're speaking and we're asked to be fair balanced, it's, it's difficult because we only have one new antibiotic to talk about. So it seems like we're selecting that out with favoritism, but that's really the only new one. So that's the only fair balance there is. So can you bring everyone up to date in what you've shown to be different about saracycline in terms of its Uh, antibiotic activity and its narrow spectrum? Long question, but I think it's an important one. Yeah,
1: I think that you hit the nail on the head. It's a little bit hard to talk about antibiotics and dermatology and not seem biased because the major antibiotic that's new in the last 40 years is saracycline. And so it's very hard. People think that you're trying to only sell saracycline when really it's the new kid on the block and it has all the new science and it's helping not just explain saracycline, it's helping to explain doxycycline, minocyclin. it's helping to explain new areas, broad versus narrow spectrum, and it's helping us understand uh, an organism, Cutibacterium acnes, at a level never before understood. And I think that that's the key. This is this innovative drug is a gateway to understanding a whole lot more, and we're just getting to the, the to the cusp of that. So, for example, in the last uh, American Academy of Dermatology meeting in New Orleans, I spoke in the acne boot camp session led by Leon Kursik, and I talked about narrow, I talked about uh, antibiotics in the in treatment of acne. That was the subject, and a lot of the things that I talked about were how the science in understanding saracycline versus doxycycline and minocycline correlated directly with the patient. So, for example, we actually now know some of the biochemistry why saracycline penetrates the blood-brain barrier much less than minocycline. And this has direct correlation with a uh, patient Uh, dizziness, vertigo, the
0: vestibular
1: disturbance. That's right. Right. So here the biochemistry connects to a clinical side effect that we see in our patients. They complain about this. So that's an important thing.
0: Let me just point out something that you said that I think is extremely important. Even if someone says I don't like the drug. I don't want to use it. That's something that they could always decide. But don't not give credit to all the other things we learn from this science, right? About the other drugs, about how we're going to look at other compounds, tetracyclines, or even in other therapeutic areas. Like you say, it's a gateway, and we cannot forget that. It's, not, it's important what we're finding out about serocycline, but it's not only about seracycline. That's the way I look at it.
1: It's exactly right. What we're our laboratory is doing is, yes, we've been studying seracycline because it's the new innovative product on the market. However, we also are studying doxycycline and minocycline because the questions we're asking go much deeper than one particular medication. Our questions are about the science behind how tetracyclines work. I always start my presentations on acne, uh, on antibiotics in acne with a simple th- concept. And that is that dermatologists still write oh, all of, of all the antibiotic prescriptions, over 75% are tetracyclines. Therefore, it, it is logical to conclude that all dermatologists should be experts in tetracyclines. If you're writing yeah, them that much, you should be an expert.
0: Chris, thank you for quoting that work that we did with the scientific panel on antibiotic use and dermatology. I appreciate that because those numbers have not changed. And that was a period of time ago. That was a good 10 years. Uh, Still, dermatologists, amongst all other classes of clinicians, write more antibiotics per clinician than any other because of all the antibiotics we write for acne. Predominantly rosacea, and some for infectious disease. So, you're exactly right. Yeah. Now, I want to right, step Jim, back. Jim,
1: let me add one more thing. So, ju- so that data that you cited actually was just recently validated in a more recent uh, study through Iman Grada, Steve Feldman, myself, and other colleagues published in JDD which actually found that that data still holds around 75% which is fascinating that it still continues in in all of this era of antibiotic resistance antibiotic stewardship all this talk about antibiotics being bad for our patients our practice of prescribing them actually hasn't changed
0: because there's not always other options you know when you're saying let's look at moving away from a certain way of doing things, we have to offer other alternatives that work equally as well. And we're still, we are still have challenges in that area. But I want to go back to something before we get to some of the specifics on the mechanisms of how the drugs work and take people from your deep basic science and translate it in a way that clinicians will understand it. Because that's sometimes... The, the difficult transition because you get into some some deep scientific stuff, and fortunately, you do. Let's go back to the C acne. Interestingly, a lot of the suppositions that we made about the activity when we're treating acne had to do with looking at other, another, a different organism, not specifically C. acnes. What did you find specifically with C. acnes that had clinical relevance? I know you found some some different sites, potential sites of action, correct? Right.
1: So so the ultimate reason that we went after the, the cryo-electron microscopy structure of the Cutie bacterium acnes ribosome was because... Just the same way that we're trying to make more targeted uh, therapies, whether it's antibiotics, uh, antibody therapies, everything's targeted. Well, if you're going to develop a therapeutic that's targeted, you really want to understand how it binds and interacts with its actual clinical target. And it was very surprising to my research group that we didn't actually have Knowledge of how any tetracycline bound to the cutie bacterium acne's ribosome, which is in theory what we're targeting when we give it to our patients that have acne vulgaris. And so we and did that's
0: the organism, what that's the organism we're targeting exactly. Right? And
1: it, so and it hadn't
0: even been defined,
1: it had not. <laughs> and so we went in and we did this structure, and it was led by uh Dr. Yvonne Lomakin in my laboratory, an excellent scientist. And what we found was that serocycline not only bound in what we've termed the canonical binding site in the 30S subunit of the ribosome, but there was a second whole new binding site that had previously never been discovered uh, in C acnes for saracycline. And this was astonishing because at first it told me, oh my gosh, we've been giving these antibiotics to our patients for 40 years Not not but doxy and minnow. And we didn't actually even understand how they worked in C acnes. And now we have tetracycline since the late fifties, early sixties. And now we have serocycline and we have a whole new binding site, a whole new mechanism of action. And I think that the ultimate I mean, the first big take-home point for your clinical dermatologists is that not all just like all anti-TNF agents or all all IL30, IL23 inhibitors are all IL-17 inhibitors for psoriasis. Just like they're all not the same. They have different uh properties, even though they have uh, so-called similar targets. Even though the tetracyclines have a similar target, an overall similar mechanism of action, there are real differences in the chemistry of how these molecules are working that make each of them different. And so absolutely, some patients respond well to doxycycline. Others do much better with minocycline. And now some do much better with seracycline. And we still don't fully understand that pharmacogenomics, why are the molecular endotypes of who's going to respond to what tetracycline. We're not quite there yet. Our lab's certainly interested in that concept. But what we're, what we're asking is really at the fundamental Atom level, which atoms in these drugs are interacting with which atoms in the C acnes ribosome, because only by understanding the function, the structure function relationship at that level, can we actually translate that into clinical response, side effect profile, but also innovation to make new antibiotics. And, and and we really want to be at the forefront of taking all of this knowledge and actually come up with even better drugs for dermatologists that treat not only the bacterial infections, that the inflammatory disorders, but we, we want to be able to really harness and, and make sure they're narrow spectrum.
0: Taking information and creating advances. So the side of this that, that I've talked about a lot, because I've been, with the pharmacy background that I've had and being involved in therapeutics, I've been asked to talk a lot about different different agents. And one of the points that I make is, yes, you have different tetracyclines, but look at the difference in their adverse reaction uh, profiles. You cannot just say they're tetracyclines. They're going to be the same. For example, doxycycline having a greater dose-related photosensitivity. Minocycline has little to no photosensitivity, but minocycline is immunogenic. It leads to some immune-based adverse events that we I'd go as far as to say we don't see with doxycycline and tetracycline, like uh, drug-associated lupus and and autoimmune hepatitis uh, because of side chain differences. So not all the drugs are created equal, even though we're in the same Chemical class, and we could go on about this in other classes, and we will in some other discussions.
1: Jim, a great example of this same concept is the PDE4 inhibitors, right? So, we recently had Reflumilas come onto the market, uh, currently in psoriasis, soon to be seborrheic dermatitis and atopic dermatitis. And a lot of people uh, may think, oh, it's just another PDE4 inhibitor. But actually, I presented uh, research at the uh, International Society for Investigative Dermatology in Tokyo, and I'm actually presenting it as well at the upcoming World Congress of Dermatology in Singapore. We've done some of the same structure function studies that we've done with seracycline and the tetracyclines. We've done with uh, the PD4 inhibitors, and we actually can really trace down to specific hydrogen bonding patterns the reasons why is a much high, has a much higher binding affinity for PD four than some of the other uh, PD four inhibitors, and so we can actually trace all of the chemistry that's happening to explain some of the issues with clinical response and and potency in that class of
0: medicines. So you're actually you know bringing up something that I wanted to talk to you about, but you, I'm glad you brought it up because in looking at PD four inhibitors, you know. We've, many of us have been saying they're not all created equal. There was actually some data published that was based on on a premolast. And it was, it was from not the company that has Rifumilast. It was, it was from the company that have oral uh, premolast, And they looked at activities of different PDE4 inhibitors. They included Rifumilast. They included Crisoborol. They included a Premalast and some others. And they showed differences in the potency and also the effect on cytokines as they relate to different isoforms of PD4 and actually showed that reflumolas was the most potent compared to the others. And some of those are in development but are not not available. But one of the points was a lot of people thought because cursoral had a lot of stinging and burning, they were equating that with, oh, a PD-4 inhibitors must sting and burn. That That's not correct, right? That has to do with the potency of the activity of the drug, which could be the therapeutic effect, or when you're in the GI tract, could be an adverse effect, right, that we see like with oral apremilast. But there's so much that goes into the differences. What you're talking about, and you've taken it, a big step further by looking at the, the structural activities of the drugs, which I think is a big help. But also there's vehicle formulation. There are so many factors that go into not lumping the drugs together. So, so I applaud you on this. But what I'm hearing, I don't know that we have to tell the clinicians in the trenches all the different atoms but you can explain to them why there are differences that they're seeing with their drugs that they're using in given patients and how to better select therapies, right? So what, what can you tell me more about what you found with the antibiotic resistance aspects of saracycline? Because you did find some differences that relate to it structurally. Yeah. So
1: Jim, you're right on. While I think in terms of atoms, and I'm connecting atoms to clinic. One of the things that I want to do is to take that science, I present it to the right audience as the hardcore science, but to certain people, to the clinicians, I need to synthesize that and put it into key points of how it helps your average dermatologist that's in the trenches uh, every day seeing patients. So that's very important. So that applying that to, to antibiotic resistance, here's what I would say. We know that antibiotic resistance is a really big problem, and there's been a lot of difficulties in understanding why it occurs, how it occurs, and how we can overcome it. What we learned with seracycline is, we know from uh, certain in vitro studies that serocycline has the lowest rate of inducing C. acne's resistance of any of the tetracyclines. And one of the things that, that we discovered, as we, we already talked about, was that seracycline can now bind two sites in the ribosome, not just one. And it, so, so that number one is one way in which saracyclin can overcome resistance because it's inhibiting the ribosome in two places. So therefore- and you're not the-
0: likely to have mutations in both at the same time, Exactly correct? That's exactly right. right.
1: You, you so, cannot- Well, I'm listening. I pay
0: attention. You, you, I'm paying attention. You can't. <laughs>
1: ribosomal mutations- cannot be it's less likely to have simultaneous mutations in two places it's the same principle when you think about hiv and some of the early uh difficulties with protease inhibitors etc because of the it's much harder when those drugs hit two uh locations than one and for that for that resistance to develop however however we also noticed in our crystal structure so we we actually have We've been talking about the cryoEM structure, but our original crystal structure from 2000, 2020 that was published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, we found that the C7 moiety of seracyclin, the unique side chain that really makes serocycline stand out, interacts with the messenger RNA and the ribosome, which none of the other tetracyclines have that. And so what happens with that is also now you have a chemical structure uh, component of serocycline that's really acting kind of like a a stick into the messenger RNA, so it can't process properly through the ribosome. So that, again, is now a third mechanism that makes it harder for resistance to develop. And you have to, to remember that Ribosomal mutations are are one of the less likely forms of of antibiotic resistance when it comes to the tetracyclines. Really, it's more what are called ribosomal protection proteins, like TET-M coming in and kicking out the antibiotic or efflux pumps that pump the antibiotic out of the cell right right right. So, so so when but when it comes to some of the ways in which you can overcome these mechanisms not only do you have the two binding sites but now you have this extra kind of stick into the messenger rna that's kind of halting and grinding the ribosome to a stop and if you have that extra contact we made a movie i have a movie uh, about this that was made by my collaborator, Yuri Polikinov, that I show in some of my presentations, where actually it's harder for the ribosomal protection proteins to kick out serocycline because it has the this extra contact with the messenger RNA. So, so this is uh, this is really deep science to explain simple concepts. Why is it less likely to develop resistance uh, for C. acnes compared to the other antibiotics? Well, we actually have real science
0: to back that up. So really, the, the, the message to the clinicians, they could get into this to whatever depth they want to, the information's available. But the bottom line, when we're up there and we're making the point of these differences with saracyclines, we're not there to push a marketing message. It's backed by a lot of scientific evidence. There's a lot of, uh, you know, data based on the MICs, you know, just simply the MICs, George Zanel has written about, Dr. Gronon from from uh, Cleveland has done a lot of different work on looking at MICs against different organisms and comparing with minocycline, extensive work. So there's a lot of data with yours really showing right in there, getting right in there, a lot of these structural differences and these important differences that to date we haven't had. So the message to the clinicians is there is a lot of science behind the statements that are being made. So Chris, I'm going I'm to thank you. This is very exciting. We could go on forever, but I know we have to get back to some work and hopefully a little bit with family at some point. So thanks a lot for being here. My pleasure, Jim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.